Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I'm honored to have as today's guest, Dr. John Dodson, who serves as Director of NYU Langone's Geriatric Cardiology Program. Dr. Dodson, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Dr. Dodson maintains an active general cardiology practice, which focuses on patients over age 70 and also provides care for patients undergoing cardiac rehabilitation at NYU's Rusk Rehabilitation. He currently is the principal investigator for a patient-oriented research career development award known as K23 from the NIH National Institute on Aging and a mentored clinical and population research award from the American Heart Association an assistant professor in both the Department of Medicine and the Department of Population Health. He's board certified in both cardiovascular disease and internal medicine by the American Board of Internal Medicine. A recipient of a fellowship in epidemiology from Brigham and Women's Hospital, he also had a fellowship in geriatrics from Yale University School of Medicine, and another fellowship in cardiovascular disease from Yale New Haven Hospital. His medical degree is from NYU, and he has an MPH degree from Harvard University. He did his residency at Columbia University Medical Center. So Dr. Dodson, please tell our listeners why you selected a career in medicine with a focus on the rehabilitation of older patients. Thanks again for having me on this podcast, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about what I'm doing and and my research and clinical focus. So I would say that I have had an interest in the care of older adults for a long time, But really during my cardiology fellowship was when I started to get interested in specific issues relating to older patients and relating to their outcomes. And and specifically what I saw as a fellow in training, and this was when I was at Yale training in cardiology, which was a three-year program, was I was taking care of a lot of patients in their 80s and 90s where we didn't have great evidence about what worked. And so, for example, medications that we give for a heart attack or procedures that we do for arrhythmias, we have a lot of studies in generally younger patients uh, that are generally healthier. And it was unclear when I was talking to a patient in their 80s or 90s exactly how they would do after this procedure, after this medication, and patients wanted to know. And I had very little evidence. And so I'd always been interested in research. I think that clinical training in cardiology really exposed me to a lot of what we don't know in cardiovascular disease, and a lot of that applied to older patients. And so actually after my clinical cardiology fellowship, I did, as you'd mentioned, uh, two years of geriatrics research training at Yale where I really started to look at some of these issues in depth. So we looked, for example, at patients with defibrillators and situations in which patients may want their defibrillators deactivated. 
We looked at cognitive impairment and readmission risk for heart failure. And I had people in geriatrics and people in cardiology who were mentoring me and helping me to focus research questions. I was then up in Boston for more training before coming to NYU in 2014 for what was really my first faculty position as uh, director of our geriatric cardiology program. And NYU is really looking to grow both the research and clinical program in geriatric cardiology. And since that time, I've had several projects which we can get into, and I can also talk about the clinical practice and uh, what we're trying to do to really bridge these two disciplines that traditionally have been separate, but I think with the trends that we're seeing in the population really going to be essential to work together. Thank you for that answer. You've been involved in a substantial body of research, and one study in which you participated found that frail patients with myocardial infarction had lower use of cardiac catheterization and a higher risk of major bleeding when catheterization was performed as compared to non-frail patients. These findings, in a way, highlight a conundrum with invasive management in frail patients with this condition. So when you're faced with this kind of a situation, how is the decision made regarding the most effective mode of treatment to provide? Well, it's still a very individualized decision. And just to take a step back and talk about cardiac catheterization. So this is a procedure where we take a catheter and go into the vessels in a minimally invasive manner. We used to, in the 1970s and 1980s, do a lot of bypass surgery and cardiac catheterization has come a long way and it's now the, the dominant mode of treating patients with heart attacks, for example, where we go in with a catheter, place a stent and open up a vessel. And if you look over time, over the past 30 years, there's really been a paradigm shift. We published a paper back when I was still training where we found that 2% of patients in the 1990s were having a catheterization, and 15 years later, it was over 25%. Now it's, it's over half. Uh, if you look at contemporary data of patients who are over age 75 or 80 are undergoing these catheterization procedures. So the decision is still very individualized. I'd say in general, there are two major subtypes of myocardial infarction, which is just kind of our, our terminology for a heart attack. One is called ST segment elevation and the other is called non-ST segment elevation. And it's based on the appearance of the electrocardiogram. So somebody comes into the emergency room, has an EKG. If there's the appearance of ST segment elevation, nearly 100% of those patients go straight to the catheterization laboratory. And that's based on evidence that the sooner we treat those patients, the better they do. There's little debate about that at this point, and I'd say that's the standard of care across the board in the U.S. But if you look at older patients, again, I, I generally use 75 or older to, to classify those folks. Other people have different cutoffs, but generally over age 75 is when we really start to get some of these issues like frailty that I think we'll talk about a little bit more later. The majority of those patients have what's known as non-ST segment elevation. So they come in, you do an electrocardiogram, you don't see that typical pattern, you might see other changes, but those patients can wait and often they do either overnight or for several days until we really know whether or not we want to do a catheterization. Again, we're doing a lot more catheterizations than we used to, but we have paused sometimes, I think appropriately, if folks come in, for example, with impaired kidney function. That makes the likelihood of some sort of damage to the kidneys much more likely if we do the catheterization. Bleeding is another issue that a lot of people are concerned about, I think appropriately so. So let's say you come in, have a catheterization, you get a stent, you need to take two medications uh, for at least several months, and one of those medications, aspirin, you should take for the rest of your life. At least that's what the guidelines state. And so what we did in this specific study was we actually looked at frailty, and frailty is this concept of an increased 
vulnerability to physiologic stress. And so it encompasses a number of domains, but one of those domains is people have low muscle mass, they have weakness, and that's thought to make patients vulnerable to a whole number of adverse consequences, including bleeding. So we had this registry, it was called the Action Registry, uh, one of the, the national U.S. registries. And what we found was that patients who had this frailty phenotype were much more likely to bleed. They had double the rate of bleeding. And that is something that we're not really using explicitly in our decision-making at clinicians. And so one of my central arguments with geriatric cardiology is that if we're able to easily measure frailty, then maybe in these cases where it's not like people need to go right away for a catheterization, we can use that in our decision-making because we know if you're frail, you have double the risk of bleeding, and obviously that's a bad outcome, especially when we're giving patients these medications to go home with. You know, they come back with bleeding too, and so it's a major issue. And a lot of my research is focusing on these syndromes that older patients have and how they influence care. And how do you measure frailty that you just mentioned? Well... That's a very good question. And so there, there's a lot of debate, actually, more so than you'd think. And different people have different conceptions of frailty. Again, it's a syndrome. So that's a collection of signs and symptoms. There are criteria uh, that were developed by Linda Freed when she was at Johns Hopkins, known as the Freed Frailty Criteria. Those are probably the most commonly used by researchers. What I'd say in clinical practice is that the simplest thing to do is to walk a patient because how fast they walk, which is known as gait speed, is, is a pretty good surrogate for the frailty syndrome. And so if somebody walks slow, generally they're frail. There are other simple measurements we can do as well. Uh, another measurement is grip strength. And so we have something called a dynamometer, which a patient can squeeze. And based on how hard they can squeeze, if they're very weak, that's also a good surrogate for frailty. Because again, in practice, we don't have a whole lot of time to do a lot of different instruments. So if we can have something simple that works, that's generally what we do. So in my outpatient practice, I have a, a grip strength test I do on every patient to see whether or not they have weakness. And if so, it's generally thought that that increases their risk for adverse events, and it correlates reasonably well with the frailty phenotype. Another study in which you were involved sought to determine the associations of incident heart failure with rates of cognitive decline and whether these differed by atrial fibrillation status or reduced versus preserved dejection fraction. What are the clinical implications of this investigation that you're involved in regarding whether early and consistent optimal management can counteract or prevent an associated decline in cognitive function in patients who experience heart failure? This was another study we published recently. This was out of a large registry where they followed patients for many years and looked at cognitive decline. And it was in the setting of literature where researchers have shown that heart failure patients have this unexpectedly high rate of cognitive impairment. We don't know exactly why. There are a couple of hypotheses. One is that they have poor heart function, so their heart's weak. It's not pumping enough blood to the brain. But most heart failure patients who are older actually have normal heart function. And so it can't just be that they have poor pump function. And so there, there are a number of other things. Maybe they're having more embolic events, so maybe their heart is forming clots and those clots are embolizing to the brain. Maybe uh, there are some other diseases that occur with heart failure that are more common in those patients. What we found in this study was that patients who had heart failure at baseline were more likely to develop heart failure over time. Now, when they looked at the heart failure subtypes and they looked at the what's called the ejection fraction, which is how much uh, blood your heart pumps out each time it beats, that didn't seem to affect the rate of cognitive decline, nor did the presence of atrial fibrillation, which is known to be a risk factor for stroke, and strokes can cause cognitive decline. 
So we know that patients with heart failure have a higher um, rate of cognitive impairment. We don't know exactly why, but I think one of the take-home messages here is that we have a lot of patients with heart failure in the U.S. It is a common reason for patients to be hospitalized, and it's common in older patients. So what I do in my clinical practice uh, is actually screen for cognitive impairment, even though I don't know exactly what to do with it. And there's no intervention for cognitive impairment per se that we know uh, prevents the decline. It still influences day-to-day management. So for example, if you look at the guidelines for heart failure, patients are supposed to take like five drugs to manage their fluid status, to control their blood pressure, to prevent the kind of adverse changes to the ventricle that happen as a course of the disease. And so I have somebody in my office and I say, you know, go home and take these five medications. Cognitive impairment can can influence that process. And so if somebody has cognitive impairment, they might forget to take their medications. They might take double the dose of their medications. And so in my mind, it's important to know. And it's important because number one, it might influence how complicated that regimen is. But number two, I try to really involve the caregiver. And so I try to involve the family member more, or I try to have uh, visiting nursing involved or, or something where, where the patient has more support than they otherwise would. And, and my hypothesis, and, and this hasn't been shown, but this is one of the areas my research is going, is that providing that screening and support can actually help patients to do better in terms of their heart failure. And so if I have some something where I can actually screen for impairment, then I can do something about it in terms of managing the disease, maybe not preventing the impairment from progressing, although that's another area of research a lot of people are working on. Unfortunately, there's nothing we know that can really prevent cognitive decline across the board. There have been a lot of, a lot of studies in this area and a lot of interesting work, though. Earlier, you mentioned slow gait speed, which has been associated with all-cause mortality, adverse surgical outcomes, and incident disability and cardiovascular disease. What kinds of rehabilitation interventions are available today to deal with that slow gait speed, and to what degree will they result in some beneficial effects and outcomes? So that's also a great question. So slow gait speed, as I had mentioned earlier, is thought to be a reasonably good surrogate for this frailty phenotype, which is this increased vulnerability to physiologic stress. And so patients who walk slower generally have uh, a higher rate of, of adverse outcomes across the board. One really interesting study actually took heart attack patients and they just looked at how fast they walked. This study, I think, was out of Japan, published a couple of years ago in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. And they found that the patients who walked the slowest uh, had the highest rate of cardiovascular events. And so it wasn't just that they were falling and, and having other problems, but actually cardiovascular events were higher in patients who walk slowly. And so, again, in, in cardiology, just to kind of underscore, this slow gait puts patients at higher risk. We don't have a clear single reason why, probably related to things like inflammation and other changes with aging. Nonetheless, we also have no single intervention for slow gait, but my suspicion is that if we can do rehabilitation on patients that are identified as frail, a certain subset of those patients will do better if we can rehabilitate them. Now, one of the reasons is rehabilitation involves muscle strengthening exercises, aerobic exercises. And so if I could somehow rehabilitate somebody who's at high risk based on their slow gait, they'll walk faster, they'll have a lower rate of problems. There's some really interesting work being done in this field. There's actually a study in Canada now that's taking these frail patients, these patients with slow gait around the time of cardiac surgery, 
and they're doing rehabilitation and they're also doing a nutritional intervention and seeing if that can lower the rate of problems down the road. So I'd say it's an active area of research. There's not a single thing we do for slow gait. I think the number one important thing is to screen for it, so to actually test it in our patients. And then number two is to think about what interventions could be done, maybe interventions that we already know are beneficial. Uh, For example, cardiac rehabilitation. So if somebody walks slowly and they have a heart attack, they're at higher risk. We know a lot of patients aren't even getting to cardiac rehab in the first place. A whole host of reasons for that that I can get into, but you know, I think those patients might be those who benefit most from regular cardiac rehabilitation that we already know helps. Another study in which you engaged involved patients who are readmitted within 30 days of discharge after transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Some of those selected patients are then discharged to skilled nursing facilities, yet the association between a hospital's practice to discharge to the home versus to a skilled nursing facility and subsequent readmission may be somewhat unclear. Does it make any difference in the eventual outcome regarding the prospect of a hospital readmission if the patient is being discharged to the home or to the skilled nursing facility? If so, please explain in what ways. So this study was published in the Journal of the American Heart Association, and what we looked at in this study was another registry. So the study earlier was a heart attack registry. This was a registry study across the United States of patients who underwent this transcatheter aortic valve procedure. And we were interested in whether hospitals that discharge these patients home more often than to skilled nursing facilities uh, had a higher rate of readmission within 30 days. Our focus on readmission was based on the fact that health systems, insurers, everybody's caring about readmission these days, I, I think for valid reasons, because for a patient, it's, it, it can be very disruptive. For the health system, it, it's very costly. And so we were wondering whether or not hospitals that sent a lot of their patients home had a higher readmission rate. And, and essentially, we found that the answer was no. Now, there are a lot of caveats to that. Hospitals who discharge a lot of patients home rather than, than to skilled nursing facilities have patients with different characteristics. And so you know, we tried to adjust for that, and we still really didn't find much. But one of the most interesting findings of this study was that If you look at regions of the United States, there's a lot of regional variation. So, for example, in the Northeast, more patients go to skilled nursing facilities than in the South or in the Midwest. And so I I think some of it has to do with the available supply of of these nursing facilities. But we've seen a general trend over the past uh, five to ten years of more patients going home rather than to skilled nursing facilities. You know, in terms of patient preference, a lot of that's good because patients want to be home. They want to be in a familiar environment. We just want to make sure that we're not putting them at increased risk by doing so. Based on this study, it doesn't seem like we're like we're doing that. You know, but again, I, there are certain patients who need skilled nursing facilities and they have clear needs that can't be taken care of at home. And so, again, I, I think we need more research in this area and we need to figure out which patients are the best candidates for skilled nursing facilities. And then with those patients who go home, what, what kind of services they may need as well. Along lines of what you just said, and while we're on the topic of discharge, effective steps would seem to involve patient needs assessment, medication reconciliation, patient education, making arrangements for outpatient and home-based services, and perhaps even doing some telephone follow-up work with these individuals. Please describe how at NYU you go about making such arrangements and the kinds of personnel involved in doing so. So it varies by the patient and the service they receive, so I can't speak on behalf of the whole institution. But what I'd say in general is that 
The discharge instructions are written by either the physician, the nurse practitioner, or the physician's assistant. And then they're gone through by the patient's nurse on the day of discharge. And depending on the case, there can be a lot of input from a care manager or social worker in terms of ensuring a safe discharge home. Certain conditions have a lot more in terms of uh, intense focus than other conditions. For example, heart failure, which is a very common subgroup that gets readmitted to the hospital, has a whole program where they do a lot to prevent readmissions, including trying to get patients to come back within the first week to see a physician, go over the medications, make sure people understand their instructions. Again, a lot of what's been found in the past is that uh, patients who don't understand their instructions, don't take their medications, those are the ones who come back to the hospital. And so by ensuring early follow-up, the idea is to prevent those readmissions, those medication errors that may lead to bad outcomes. Dr. Dodson, I'm going to conclude part one of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners about several important topics pertaining to the care of cardiology patients. A second part of this interview will be made available on a separate occasion, and our listeners are invited to access it also. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you continued success in all your endeavors and look forward to the second part of the interview. Thank you, sir. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.